it. Welcome to Strata Stories. My name is Thomas Schreiber, and I'm the Director of Marketing here at Strata. Strata is a single EMR platform and a revenue cycle management service for physical, occupational, and speech therapy practices that helps you achieve a 99.99% reimbursement rate. On today's episode, Paul Singh, the CEO of Strata, talks with Shreya Jagalarmudi, the co-founder and CEO at Pledge Health, a Y Combinator-backed startup that helps healthcare practices grow their revenue by automating patient billing and payment collection. Paul and Shreya talk through investing in healthcare startups, Shreya's biggest learnings from building a health tech startup, and the challenges of bridging the gap between healthcare and technology. If you'd like to learn more about Strata, head over to stratapt.com or email us at hello at stratapt.com. Now, without further delay, here's today's episode. First off, look, I have no business relationship with Y Combinator. And full disclosure, I've invested in, I don't know, probably 60 Y Combinator companies over the years. So I'm somewhat familiar. I do think it's exciting to see more Silicon Valley investors investing in health tech. I don't think that was happening as much as it is now, like 10 years ago. So when I, when I was really heavily involved in the Silicon Valley tech scene 10, 12, 15 years ago, if you showed up with a healthcare company back then, people were like, what? No, <laughs> like pound sand. We want to create the next LinkedIn or the next Facebook mm-hmm. or something like that. Yeah. So I think it's really cool that Y Combinator is backing more and more health companies now. And uh, it's pretty neat. For sure. There's a whole group dedicated to healthcare now. And like um, there's healthcare specific partners, which has been honestly amazing. They have the expertise in the specialized, like they understand the specialized needs of healthcare startups. So definitely seeing a lot more like action um, from Y Combinator side in healthcare. For anybody that hasn't been through the fundraising journey before, what was that like for you? I mean, obviously Y Combinator is, for anybody that doesn't know, obviously Y Combinator is like one of the, it's like the gold standard, if not one of them. What was that journey like for you? Like, were you, I'm only going to go fundraise from YC no matter what? Or did you go through like 20 other investment firms before you stumbled in? Like, what what was your journey like for the company? Yeah, so for us, it wasn't really about the money when we applied to YC because we were both bootstrapping, my co-founder Andrew and I. So it was really bad. Like, we just want to, we're first-time founders and we heard great things about Y Combinator and we really thought it would help us to um, get some great advice. And most importantly, just be around other founders who are going through the exact same thing as you are at such an early stage. So that was the main motivation for us why we applied to Y Combinator. And once we got into YC and you know we were seeing uh, a bunch of traction from customers, we're like, okay, it's actually now time to like get more money from outside and like grow because we were kind of done bootstrapping by ourselves. <laughs> you know, we just, let's take outside money. So that's kind of how um, we started our fundraising process post YC. So that's the first time we really started talking to investors. And funnily enough, we started the process early this year, right? And we fundraised um, early this year. And it was downturn, or you probably already know this, but I literally had meetings scheduled with investors for the week after. And that weekend is one uh, when uh, SBB went down. Oh, man. And we were like, oh my gosh, what's going to happen? Like, are people still going to make it to the calls? And like, so I actually like that weekend email, like all of my, whoever I was taking calls with. And I was like, hey, I know there's a lot going on. Happy to cancel the call and just let me know whenever you're ready to chat again. Surprisingly, though, a lot of them came back and said, 
no, we're backing our companies and this is not going to affect any of our new investments. So that was really good. That kind of like helped us not freak out as much as we would have, I guess. Yeah. And in general, like being part of an accelerator like Y Combinator made it easier in one way to fundraise because typically when you don't have that stage to say, you're the one reaching out to investors and trying to get intros and stuff. So it kind of takes away that part because investors are reaching out to you when you're in one of these accelerators. Same for 500, same for like any other accelerator. So that piece, definitely easier. But once you get those investors on calls, actually getting that investment as a healthcare company specifically, I think it was a little bit more challenging because a lot of investors do not specialize in healthcare or they do not want to explicitly don't want to invest in healthcare just because they don't understand it. And that's totally fair. So that I would say eliminates a lot of investment opportunities in general, being like a healthcare specific company. I appreciate you sharing that. I think one of the things that's interesting is that in many ways, your metrics and our metrics and stuff like that look like any other B2B SaaS company. It's almost like when you put the healthcare label on it, everybody freaks out. (laughs) I don't know why that is. Maybe we just should make a different name or something like that. It's like, I don't know. I mean, it's interesting too, right? Like, for example, when we were fundraising, we'll say people would ask like, what are you doing? And we'd say like patient billing and like, things like that. So immediately, a lot of people, what they do is they go Google patient billing. And you know how many patient billing companies there are out there. So as a person that doesn't understand healthcare, how am I supposed to figure out if this company is actually doing something different or if it's just another one of those companies, right? Yeah. So that itself, no matter how clearly you try to explain things, it's always one of those things. If you don't already know, you're always going to be suspicious or you're like, it's just not a comfortable, yeah. It's one of those things, it's, as much as it's not fair, the reality is, is so much of the investor circuit runs on pattern matching. Mm -hmm. And the minute you don't match the pattern in any way, everything stops. And, And that's sort of the tragedy of the whole system. I have a feeling I know the answer to this, but I'm genuinely curious. You and I know that if you walk around the tech circles and you say, I'm backed by YC or I'm backed by Andreessen or 500, in the tech circle, people know that as, okay, somebody else well-known did the diligence, this is a legit company, and then let's have the conversation. Yeah. I would bet, does that sort of translate into your clients as well? Like when you go to a practice and you're like, hey, we're backed by YC, are they like, oh, oh yeah, awesome. Or what? Oh, no, no. It's like <laughs> no one knows anything. Like they usually <laughs> do not care. But you know what they care about? The standard is, okay, this X like organization is using us, right? Like it's a different clinic that they look up to or the clinic that they have heard of before or a clinic owner endorsing you. Those are the things they care about. They do not care or they don't even know who these people are. Sometimes we just live in a bubble until you go to a conference in the middle of the country and you're trying to sell your product to a bunch of doctors and they have no idea. They don't know anything about your world, your tech world, nothing. All they care about is how much money can you save me and who else is using you? How long have you been around? That's all they care about. That latter question, I will say just, this is obviously more about you than me, but I would just say like that latter thing you just talked about, that was one of the biggest eye openers for me when I got into the healthcare space was like credibility was determined by how long ago your company was founded and then also quickly followed by who else is using you. 
<laughs> yeah, for sure. I get why they do that, but man, it makes it hard for new entrants into anything. Especially in the SMB and like mid-market, small uh, health group sort of space, it's especially true. We don't sell into hospitals, so I wouldn't know like what it's like there. Maybe the execs there are like more familiar, but I have talked to like 300 provider uh, pra- you know, organizations and they couldn't care less about like what accelerator or who you're backed by. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is going to sound really uh, awkward and, and uh, I'm not afraid of like putting it in the show, but obviously our business, we're not obviously competitive to you or anything like that, but like we have a very similar thing, right? Where, you know, there's people that request demos and they want to know who else uses us, all that stuff, right? It's probably the same for you. Yeah. More increasingly, we're getting YC-backed companies that are filling out the, the our demo requests because, you know, we provide the billing layers and stuff like that. <laughs> you know, one of the fascinating things is like, they're so different than some of the other startup practices that we have to deal with. And it's just like one of those things where internally we have to just kind of level set ourselves a little bit and say like, when a startup practice comes to us and we're like, hey, listen, we're probably not right for you, you know, da da da. We have to like calibrate a little bit because, you know, a YC or a 500 or like a venture funded health tech company comes in. It's like, hey, these guys are probably funded for the next 12 or 24 months. So we should probably not treat them exactly like a startup practice. We should probably treat them a little different. So there's been a little bit of a learning curve. And I don't mean this in any negative way, but like, you know, a lot of the people that work in our company probably, you know, I don't know about yours, but like, they're not familiar with what backed by YC means. The extent of exposure to venture capital is Shark Tank. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <You know>? Yeah. <laughs> so let's just talk about this a little bit more, because I think this is fascinating. And our audience is practice owners and people that you're probably selling into and and things like that. So hopefully it's interesting to hear the other side of this, you know, what you just talked about. And again, I'm just going to phrase this a little bit different way, just see how it strikes you. When I think back to like my time in healthcare, there are things that I thought would be hard that turned out to be easy. And there's things that I thought were going to be easy that turned out to be hard. And I'll give you an example because you've sort of touched on them and I'm curious what else might've struck you. So I thought, for example, given what I knew about healthcare or what I thought I knew about healthcare, I thought the technology side of healthcare would be hard and the customer acquisition side would be easy because like, I was like, oh man, everybody talks about HIPAA and PHI. Like, gosh, that's a lot. That There's going to be a lot of tech work there, you know? And customer acquisition, no big deal. These guys, man, the minute you show them, like, right now I'm on the other side of it. And I'm like, I was wrong about both those things. The tech is actually no different than consumer or B2B. It really isn't. They just use different jargon, but it's the same security audits. It's the same everything. The customer acquisition though, man, I did not anticipate (laughs) it to be (laughs) closed cycles. I don't know about you guys, but like for us, our average time from when we meet to the time they close and onboard and all that is like 90-ish days. doesn't matter if you're big or small. That's just kind of how it goes. Yeah. I didn't anticipate that. B2B SaaS is like a week or two. <laughs> like consumer is like 10 seconds. Yeah. Because you need to remember that like typically like SaaS companies are selling to like potentially other tech companies and stuff. But when you like go into verticals, those people are not living online like the rest of the tech world, right? Getting to them, that's one of the parts that I today like find extremely challenging is how can we get discovered by these people that don't live online? Yeah. Right. And how how do we like show up where they go? I totally agree. That's definitely like the most challenging thing. Yeah. <laughs> I think if a practice owner is listening to this, they're going to know exactly what the playbook is here and that's okay. But, <laughs> you know, I think uh, 
for, well, actually, sorry, before I jump to that, let me maybe just finish that last question though. Are there other things where you were like, hey, this is going to be hard. And then you realize it was going to be easy or vice versa, things you thought were easy that turned out to be hard. So obviously customer acquisition was one of them, but were there any other, I mean, you've been in business now for a year or more, I think. I don't know what the yeah, date like is. Yeah, like two years now. Two years. Customer acquisition is just one of those things where I knew it was going to be hard and it is hard. Just a little bit of background. I come from an engineering background. There's certain things I knew I didn't know about and it was going to be hard and it is hard. That's fine. But the thing that I thought was actually going to be hard that turned out to be really easy is I thought finding problems that haven't already been solved would be really challenging. Because like I said earlier, there's so many like patient billing or like patient cost estimation type of software. But when you talk to users, we realize that even though there are so many solutions out there, if you can show them higher ROI and fit better into their workflows, they will use your product without you having to like push much, right? So that was actually way easier than we thought because initially going in, it's a crowded space. We all know this. And from our perspective, well, it doesn't matter how many companies are doing this. When we first started as a patient, no one still tells me how much I owe. And as a practice owner, you spend hours figuring out how much a patient is going to owe, right? It just sounded horrible from both sides. Okay, well, if there's 100 solutions out there, then why isn't anyone tackling this well? And that's why we took the, you know, we were like, let's just go in. Doesn't matter how many people are doing it. But, you know, that was one of the things I thought was going to be hard, but it's not. On the other hand, I didn't really think anything would be really easy but there are a lot of things you're doing for the first time as a first-time founder that you don't know how complex they can get, customer acquisition being one of them, right? It's just one of those things where it's going to be hard until it gets easy, right? So there's a lot of those things um, as a first-time founder. I would echo like everything you're saying there too. It's really fascinating. And I think that for practice owners on the other side, like I get it, you know, there's a lot of skepticism and stuff like that. I kind of joke with our engineering team that I can't, say that I'm a developer. I know I, I write a little bit of code every day and a ship to production and all that stuff, but like, I want to be really respectful. Like we have real engineers on the team and I'm just <laughs> dabbling, you know, <laughs> but, but that being said though, like some of the like really random nerdy stuff that I thought was really fascinating is that like in the consumer world or even the B2B SaaS world, you really only have to support I don't know, the most recent four versions of every browser. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and then you deal with these healthcare providers and you've got to like support the last 20 versions of stuff. I mean, we I'm looking at like Google Analytics. I always keep it on a second monitor, just watching all of our activity. Mm -hmm. And it's like, there's somebody with Internet Explorer 10 right now, <laughs> like mm -hmm. inputting in uh, patient information. It's like, is that computer from like the 90s? I don't I don't know. Like that, That's crazy. Yeah. You know what's funny? That same person is probably using Uber to like order food, order cat, like rides and everything. But there is a setting where they're going and putting themselves through this just because, again, it's just so hard to like move things in a vertical like healthcare. I mean, again, for a good reason, I'm not saying this in a negative way, but like, of course, it's just so funny to like see that happen, right? Yeah, exactly. It's like, if you had told me this before I got into this, I'd be like, are you kidding? No, these are normal people. They probably have an iPhone in their pocket. Of course, they're going to have like a MacBook from 2021. And, and then you're like, why are all the front desk people logging in with like, weird screen sizes. Oh, wait, that's like a 15 inch monitor from like 2008. <laughs> and you're like, what in the world? 
Well, I don't mean to laugh, by the way, but you know, it's just so jarring. Um, I also think it's interesting that you come from like the engineering background. I think that I have this hypothesis that one of the biggest reasons why healthcare technology has not moved as fast is because like between the jargon and the high cost of starting up in this space, the different types of credibility that are required, just there's not a lot of people that make the jump from Silicon Valley tech to this. So it's good to have more players in the space. It's good to have more people like you coming in. Yeah, for sure. It's actually, I see it as like a huge strength coming from a completely outside world. Because at the beginning, when we were starting the company, there were a lot of like skepticism from say investors and things where you're, they're like, well, you guys don't really have healthcare experience. My co-founder, like he worked in health tech for a long time, but like, it's not like, you know, we were execs at some healthcare company type of thing. So there were a lot of skepticism, but now knowing what we know, and every time we talk to like clinic owners and stuff, I'm like, we don't need to be experts in healthcare because these guys know exactly what they're doing. It's interesting because like in the tech world, you read articles, right? Like um, healthcare is living on paper, like blah, blah, blah. But despite having all those, like, I guess, lack of tools, people have still uh, really nailed down their processes. They do really insane things to like, just make stuff work for them. So for example, be talking about like billing processes because initial calls, I was like, oh, like I read so many articles about healthcare being backwards and things like that. So it's going to be so easy because our technology like all the does X, Y, Z. And then I go and talk to the admin and she's like, what do you mean? I have no use for this. <laughs> I have everything figured out. It's extremely streamlined. My Excel one points to Excel two and blah, blah, blah. And that's when we were like, Actually, these guys know exactly what they're doing and they have it all figured out. All we need to do is take the lack of tools and add on like automation and other tooling that's just easier to use. So coming from engineering is actually providing that like complementary skill that is lacking anytime we talk to them and just using their expertise to build better products for them. So it's actually interesting how people think that if you're not from healthcare, it's actually a negative thing. Whereas we strongly believe that it's actually a truly positive thing to come from the outside in healthcare. Yeah. It's interesting. So we um we have this guy named Zane Syed from Digital Thoughts on our show once a month. One of the macro topics he talks about a lot. So he's a pharmacist, I believe, by training, and I think a product manager by day job, that sort of thing. And Zane, if you're listening, and I'm sure it's more sophisticated than that. But one of the overarching topics he talks a lot about across his newsletter and his own podcast is sort of this gap between tech and healthcare. And again, like if you read his weekly newsletter or listen to his podcast, he talks about it in so many different ways, like scheduling. My Strava app on my phone here reminds me when it's time, when I haven't done a run long enough, right? My Peloton app tells me like, hey, come back. You, you know, there's re-engagement campaigns, right? They, they, these are like consumer companies that are basically in healthcare. And anyway, like one of his most recent conversations, so he'll talk about those kinds of things, right? Where you're bridging the gap between tech and healthcare. I think you're sort of getting to this as you're talking about it. So here you are, you've been in this for like two years, you're talking to every one of these clients, you've got this engineering mindset, you're figuring it out. What's like the biggest gap? Like when you think about tech, that's kind of you guys, and then you got healthcare, which is the clients, right? What are those big gaps? Like, are they... Is it under, lack of understanding? Is it skepticism? Is it fear? What do you think the biggest gaps are between the tech you guys bring to the plate and the healthcare that you're selling into? I think 
as a healthcare technology founder, most people, including me, like we haven't been in the healthcare world long enough. So it takes us a little bit of warm up time to like understand how to talk to them, right? What gets them? Because a lot of people, for example, like when I tell them what we do, they get so excited. But getting that initial conversation with them has been definitely by far the hardest part. Mm-hmm. The gap is you have this cool tech that actually works and you have this problem that healthcare folks are trying to solve. How do you communicate that value to them? And I think that is the biggest challenge that like you, me, like all of us are facing that, right? So I think that's another reason, by the way, like earlier you were mentioning how a lot of like VC-backed um, healthcare companies tend to like stay like digital or like they're catering to other uh, digital health companies because it's just a world you know and understand how to talk to. And so much, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's definitely easier to sell into this uh, space where you understand the people and how to communicate with them than to traditional brick and mortar health store, right. healthcare clinics. Yeah. Right. You just said something there that I think is like triggered me a little bit in a good way. Is it like, it's just communication. It's like, how do you talk to them in a way that is not condescending, not above their heads, not scary? Like it's deceivingly hard, (laughs) you know, if you were to look at our entire content model, it really boils down to show, don't tell. Back to the beginning of this episode, everybody says we're the best. Everybody uses big jargon, everybody, you know, whatever. And the best way I can describe this is, is that like when I started angel investing and, and then, you know, even with 500 in 2010, our biggest challenge was not money. It was really like, how do you compete for deals in a world where Fred Wilson had been blogging for 10 years by that point? Cause you just can't beat him, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So you have to do something different. The 500 strategy was sort of like, go where they are, be normal, like be the opposite of Silicon Valley elite. Yeah. That's what we do today. Yeah, we don't we don't try to go online and like get them, which again, like that's a whole strategy that I think it's one of the mo- most basic things that a lot of people should be doing and we will too at some point. But right now, all we do is we just go where these doctors are. We go to their associations. We go to their monthly meetings, specialty meetings, whatever it is. We just show up and we just introduce ourselves. We don't try to sell. We just like have our laptop. We're like, oh, do you want to see something cool? And they genuinely get super excited because they're also bogged down. If you think about it, I get so many cold emails now. Most of the time, I don't even look at the email. I just keep archiving. If it's someone I don't recognize, I just archive because it's just like way too many. And I'm probably missing a lot of valuable things in there that are genuinely going to help my startup. And it's the same for them, right? They probably like they've been around. Their emails have been exposed for longer than, you know, I've been around. So Imagine how many emails they're getting and how many phone calls, cold calls they're getting or how many people are walking into their clinic every day. So yeah, trying to stand out and like go to places where you just have a normal conversation with them is definitely helpful. I think that's smart. I think for other startups that are coming into the space, like outbound marketing could work in normal B2B SaaS and and other tools, but it doesn't work here because to your point, they're busy. They don't trust you. They don't care. And why should they? They've been made all these promises. Yeah. Because we tried like cold email at the beginning. It didn't really work. But then we showed up over and over, right? Time again and again at the same place. And then I sent an email and then we started getting responses. So they just needed to know who we were. And then cold outbound actually started working. They might have just seen our name somewhere, right? So it was really interesting. 
Yeah. By the way, I think you nailed it. Just to like share, you know, so that you know that maybe one additional data point, we tried cold outbound. You know, I I thought, yeah, like it works for B2B SaaS. Let's try it. Off the top of my head, I think we might have gotten like, I don't know, half a percent response rate. We, off the top of my head, I believe have one 100K ARR opportunity, but it's been slow. Like it hasn't closed in eight months, nine months. Conversely, like the inbound side, when they come to us, they're already primed, usually 90 days or so from the time they they reach out to us inbound to when they sign up or, um, you know, come online and generate revenue and all that stuff. So yeah, I mean, I'm I'm with you. Like, turns out inbound works. And for whatever it's worth, one of the things we think about, you know, Thomas and I a lot is this idea that we have an awareness problem, you know, and the more we can drive awareness through if I had to like boil our strategy down to like one napkin in case this is helpful for you and anybody else listening, really, our overall strategy, if I had to put it on one tiny little cocktail napkin is basically like create content that is so good that people can't help but say, holy cow, how are they giving this away for free? For us, for example, we're giving away aggregate data for practice benchmarks, payer benchmarks, all this stuff, stuff that nobody's ever seen before, I think, for free. And we just basically put that out there and let people click. And then here's where it gets nerdy. Once they get, they click all the content, we give enough detail in the emails and the, in our email footers and stuff like that, where they click, like there's that little curiosity gap. They click through, see the full thing on their desktop, their laptop, whatever we cookie them. And then we're following them around with remarketing and retargeting for three, four, five, six months. We're then trying to get, give them a more content via like stuff like this, where they give, give a, a, an email and you just build more and more trust. And I have a feeling that like, for us, for example, I think we need to invest in more and more inbound probably for the next two or three years. And I think there is going to be an inevitable tipping point where our brand is well-known enough where we can potentially try outbound again. So anyway, worth whatever you paid for it, but I think you're smart to do it your way too. I think by going there and being there, you're sort of like, it's a credibility booster, right? Basically mimicking like whatever you're doing online. You're trying to like reach the people that you know have that problem, right? You're going about it in an online, more scalable way. And we're literally going in person to these people and spreading our name, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. There's no right way. So that's good. It's good you're doing that. I don't know if you're up for this, but just out of curiosity, like let's talk about the product. So, you know, obviously if people want to know, they can go to pledge.health and, and check it out, but give me the two minute overview. What What is it? Yeah, so Pledge is a benefits uh, management platform. Well, I say that, but actually it is a patient accounts receivable management platform in a, on a very like broad level. It's a software tool that saves more than 75 hours per month by automating manual tasks like insurance verifications, patient cost estimations, and patient billing. That's basically what it is. It's a tool that automates a lot of the manual work that you're already doing as a physician or as an admin and so on. Yeah, that's cool. You can share as much or as little as you want here, but just because again, people can go to the website and check it out, but I think it replaces manual processes and things like that. But as you guys have been growing over the last two years, once you get past that sort of like mental block of who is this person, why do they matter, whatever, once you get past that and it's time to actually implement it, How does that work for you guys? Like you just drop right in or do you go out there and train them on site or how do you guys typically like do that? No, so it's super intuitive. It plugs into your EHR system and because it's mostly automated, it's not like this huge software thing you need to learn. It doesn't have a 
large learning curve. We typically do like a 30 minute training call. It's super quick. You sign on, we get you onboarded in a week or so. And then you're on a training call for 30 minutes and that's it. That's cool. And what do you guys integrate with today? Like what are the EMRs or HRs that you guys integrate with today? Yeah, so we have um, a few integrations that are already live, uh, mostly in the wellness space and integrated health space. So one of them is Advanced MD. Another is ChiroTouch, ChiroSpring. The reason I ask, by the way, um, I don't know that I saw it on your website, but the reason I ask is like, one of the other things I thought was really jarring in this industry is the lack of APIs. Oh my You know, it's like (laughs) nobody wants to open an API, you know, and we, not to make it about us, but just as an example, we tried APIs early on, you know, we plugged into Karyo and all these other things and, and realized that like, it didn't work for us, you know, and that's why we had to create our own EMR for a lot of reasons there. But that was the other jarring thing for me though, was that like you and I come from worlds where APIs are like, if you don't have an API, like something's wrong with you. Yeah, like what are you even doing, right? (laughs) That's right. right. And then I stepped into this world and I'm like, do you have an API? And they're like, what? And I'm like, yeah, you know, like a restful endpoint. They're like, restful? What are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) I think it's mostly because at least for us, I don't know about you guys when you were starting out, but like, I do think some EHRs might see us as a competitor or like not just us, they see a lot of other people because EHRs now try to do everything. So I can see why they're like, you know what, I don't want to offer APIs. But that being said, there's a ton of new EHRs which understand that if they don't offer that interoperability and they're not going to be good at everything they do. And if their clients want best to breed things, for example, like a company that specializes in insurance verifications, right? And so on, they should let them plug and play and kind of choose their own um, tools. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I mean, I get why they do it. You know, it's interesting. We... um I was talking to another venture-backed founder and uh, it was interesting. I, I was talking to him about these APIs and I was talking about stuff. One thing led to another and see, I don't want to like put him in a spot where he has to, because it was a private conversation, but I think the part he would be okay with me sharing is that he's primarily integrated with prompt EMR. Mm-hmm. And what I thought was really fascinating was, is that in this private conversation, we were just talking about connecting with other EMRs. I was just talking to him about what are your plans and stuff like that. And the thing that I found was so jarring was that he was, I'm looking at him like this, like I'm looking at you. He was visibly scared about talking about any other EMR. And I was like, what, what, what's going on? He goes, he's like, man, if they get wind, I'm just so scared that if they get wind that I'm trying to connect with more EMRs, they're going to just pull the rug from out under me, under me. Oh, interesting. And that was like, so crazy to me that that's the relationship. And, um, I get it. Like, I, I get it. That's, that's a scary place to be. And ultimately, who suffers is the, the clinic. clinician in the clinic, yeah. right? And that's sort of the tragedy of this whole thing. Just out of curiosity, like, what does a clinic normally see? Like, in your world, there's probably a before and after. Like, before they come on, here's how much AR they have, you know, in patient responsibility. And 60 days after you come on, is that something you're comfortable talking about? Like, before and after? or Yeah, of course, uh, yeah. Love it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So a little bit about like the context, um, like you're, it's interesting what you're mentioning. It's so true. We hear some clinics say things like, oh, but you're only uh, helping me with patient responsibility. Like I care more about insurance. Do you do like insurance responsibility stuff? Like, do you do anything with insurance billing? And I'm like, no, we focus on patient billing and figuring out like how to get you paid from patients at the time of service, right? That's the key thing that we do is We're not just trying to chase patients down after the fact. We're trying to help you provide transparency to them so that they pay you when they're at the visit, 
Yeah, they're standing right there in front of you. Yeah. And the reason that's so important is up until now, like patient responsibility, I would say like on average is like 30%. Again, like depending on the specialty, it's going to be a little bit different. Maybe for some specialties, it's a bit lower, like 15, 20% or whatever, right? And like you said, a lot of clinics, uh, especially on the lower patient responsibility side, say things like, I just care about my insurance billings. I don't even look at the line item on my, you know, accounting at the end of the year for the patient portion. That's probably working fine right now. But in the next like five years, patient responsibility is supposed to go up 10% year over year. And that's a huge chunk that you're going to be ignoring and not be prepared for. And right now you might be okay with losing it. First of all, I don't know why you're okay with losing 25, 30% of your revenue, which is a huge amount, right? Even if you lost just 10%, that's big enough where that's just free money that you could have collected. And beyond that, as this goes up, you need to be prepared to capture that patient responsibility. On the other hand, There's some clinics that understand that patient responsibility is something that's key that they should be collecting. And they're spending a ton of time manually like doing all these tasks, right? Verifying insurance benefits, figuring out how much the copay is going to be and what the right copay to be uh, using is. And they're trying to collect all of that at the time of service. But again, they're spending hours doing this work. So those are like the two extreme versions of clinics that we see. Yeah. So for the people in general, like that are ignoring patient billing and putting it off to like later on, like I'll just keep sending bills and try to collect or whatever. We have been able to cut down losses by 50%. So if they were losing 100K, we're like, here's free 50K just because we're able to A, increase the patient experience and transparency. And one of the main reasons that we found that patients do not pay their medical bills is because they don't understand the bill. They typically like have to call the clinic before they can even make a payment. And who wants to like go on the phone, wait for 10 minutes and talk to someone just to be able to pay? It's like, I'm giving you my money. You're making it really hard for me to give you my money. One thing we do that's unique there is we try to like explain every single bill we send out in the context of their benefits. How did my benefits get applied to this bill so that I never have to pick up that phone and I'm able to just make that payment? This is good. Just to give you some context, the reason I think this is so fascinating, and again, like we are primarily in PT, OT, speech, that sort of world, right? I was talking about your company actually to a friend of mine you know, we were just talking about the business or whatever. And the interesting part is, so like, for example, just in broad strokes in the PT world, an average visit, depending on state units, all that, but the average is probably about a hundred bucks per visit that a clinician's going to make or a clinic's going to make for every visit. We were having this conversation just at a dinner thing. And uh, he was like, well, well, you know, the patient side, you know, I don't really worry about it or whatever. And so we just, we were talking and then I just let like another 10, 20 minutes go by. And then I was like, Hey, let me ask you something. If you were walking down the street and you found a $20 bill, would you pick it up? And he was like, hell yeah, I would. And I was like, <laughs> okay, remember we were just talking like 10, 20 minutes ago? Yeah, you remember like you said yeah. you didn't want to do that? Yeah. That's 20% of the $100 visit. And he's like, yeah, I guess that's a good point. <laughs> and like, <laughs> it's almost like we have an aware, both of us, I think every company in this space kind of has this awareness problem. And part of the thing we're all fighting is sort of the lack of awareness And then I think the other thing is people just are used to the quote unquote, the way it's always been done. Yep. No, for sure. Yeah. And the interesting thing you just mentioned about the $20 bill, even if you just don't care about the collections, there's a lot of like indirect things going on. So for example, if 
you're not telling your patients how much, you know, the visit is going to cost when they come in. And then they get a bill a month later because that person that told you that they don't care about patient bills, it doesn't mean they're not billing their patients. They still have to, by law, like by insurance requirements, they have to like send out bills, right, to patients. That's right. So they're still sending them out. They're paying money to post all these bills. They're spending all the staff time to generate all these statements. They're sending them out over and over every single month, paying money for it. So they're not only not picking up the $20 bill, they're losing money by spending all of this on extra like additional stuff to communicate bills to the patient. And what's annoying is that patient is probably going to leave them in a bad review online because they never mentioned to that patient what that cost is going to be or because they don't care about patient responsibility. So they're like, oh, I don't care about collecting it. So I'm just not going to do the work to like communicate patients' benefits and responsibility to them when they come in. So now they're losing, like their patient retention is going to be hard. And we all know that's very expensive to like get new patients into your clinic, right? So it's just this like downfall that I don't think people think about. Yeah, it's like the total cost of all this. Yeah. I mean, look, you're preaching to the choir, by the way, because in our in our world, we are the one, because we do the entire RCM layer for our clients, mm-hmm. we're the one that then fires off those three letters, like, hey, here's your bill. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're the one that they end up calling when they're like, hey, I paid 20 bucks, but you applied it to this other thing, not this one. And it's like, well, hang on, you had an outstanding. Yeah. So ultimately, I get it, right? It's like, get it at the time of service. And everything else, like your costs go down, happiness goes up, Mm -hmm. revenue. I totally get it. I think um, it's just fascinating, like how much people are okay with just throwing away revenue in this industry. It's wild. You know, it's totally wild. I guess like the stats that are being put out are so big, right? Oh, the average collection rate for a practice just doesn't matter patient insurance, like overall, it's 65%, 70%, right? And people are like, oh, I have 65%, whatever. It seems like that's the average. It is what it is. Yeah. But now I talk to practices with 98% collection rates, right? Yeah. You're preaching to the choir here. I love it. <laughs> I want to be respectful of your time here. What, um, so as you guys look at the next year for you guys, uh, what's the big, I don't know how you want to kind of go down this path, but like whether it's roadmap, company Mm -hmm. milestones, like what's the big stuff coming down Mm -hmm. the pipe for you guys over the next six to 12 months? So right now uh, we're very much focused on growing and we're like growing quite a bit, especially in the PT space and mental health and other integrated wellness space. So far, we've been able to automate verifications and tell people like how much their visit is going to cost. The thing we keep getting asked about is there's this other pre-registration process, which involves prior authorizations. So next on the roadmap that's going to be huge is automating the prior authorization process. That means knowing when someone needs a prior auth, because we already have the benefits data. So telling you like, hey, this person needs prior auth and go to this exact website to submit it. And in the future, maybe even like auto-submitting prior odds for people by getting all the relevant data from the doctors. So that's definitely a huge focus area for us, streamlining that entire like pre-registration process for the patient. That's cool. We're adding new integrations too. So yeah, that's always going to be the case. That's great. You're based in Chattanooga, Tennessee now, right? Is that where you're at? Yes. Is the whole team there or are you guys spread out through the country? The team, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, that's great. So if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? 
yeah, they can always go to our website and book a demo or, um, you know, if they want to see the product or if they want to reach out to me personally, they can always email me at Shreya, S-H-R-E-Y-A, at Pledge.Health. Thanks for listening to another episode of Strata Stories. Strata is a single EMR platform and revenue cycle management service for physical, occupational, and speech therapy practices that helps you achieve a 99.99% reimbursement rate. If you'd like to learn more about Strata, head over to stratapt.com or email us at hello at stratapt.com.